0: It is Wednesday, so it is the 26th of July, 2023. It's Wednesday already. Can you believe it? How are you? It's raining dats and cogs here in Salford. The lovely weather we experienced this week has uh, disappeared in a torrent of rain. Ah, sure, climate change.
1: Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show.
2: It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on RichieAllen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world.
0: And now, here's your host,
2: Richie Allen.
0: Now, a few years ago, Peter Gregson was on the Richie Allen Show. Peter's a lovely guy. He's a very interesting guy. He has been a political candidate, an activist, a trade unionist. Would you believe it? But recently, he was suspended as a local parent volunteer for his local scout troop, the Craig Almond scout group in Edinburgh suspended him. He was treasurer for nine years. He has been suspended because of his extracurricular interests. Um, he's very much pro-Palestine, you see, and anti-Zionism. So he's been suspended by the Craig Almond scout group. We'll talk to Peter about that. He's called on Bear grills, would you believe it, to intervene. Uh, to demand that people are not cancelled for their opinions. Yes, we're hearing a lot about that these days. And David Whelan is an author. He's a writer, Substack. will give you all the details. He's also making a film about the assassination of John Lennon. I can't wait to talk to David about that. That comes up in our two. It's Wednesday's show with Richie Allen. The biggest baldy gammon in the world. Although, although, there there is competition. You will know Nicola Lund. Nicola's a great lady, very good on the radio. She's also a writer, conservative woman, and many other places. She'll be back on this programme soon. She's also a grandmother. A grandmother. And she's self-styled herself as the BBG2, the Big Bad Grandmother. She's got a beautiful granddaughter. And she's been helping ween, not ween, but helping the granddaughter to adjust... ...to having her hair blow-dried. Yeah, apparently very young children don't like the blow-dryer. Can't remember myself what it was like... ...to have a blow-dryer in my right hand. I can't remember it's been so long ago. I cut my hair these days with a razor blade. Anyway, Nicola, beautiful granddaughter. Congratulations all round. I hope you're well. And I hope to hear you back... ...on this radio show at some time... ...in the very, very near future. Nicola. Now... The NatWest chief executive, Dame Alison Rose, is no longer the NatWest chief executive. This is the Nigel Farage bank account drama. She's going to step down after basically coming under pressure, after it was revealed that the bank took a very dim view of Nigel Farage and his political opinions and they closed his account. So she was criticised for this and for being the source of an inaccurate BBC report about Farage's account at Coots, which is part of the NatWest group. She was the source, she told the BBC. She's leaving by mutual consent, according to the chairman of NatWest, Howard Davies. She said she had committed a serious error of judgment. That is a quote. Your man himself, Nigel Farage, was on BBC Radio 4 this morning. He talked about this. He spoke to Nick Robinson.
2: I was kicked out of the bank because of my political views what on earth does that have to do with a bank? Their job is to run a bank, not to become moral arbiters. The frightening piece is this. I am far from alone. Many other people have come forward to say they've been shut out because of what they stand for and what they believe. And now the banks are working on monitoring the social media of every single one of us. And that is Needs to be stopped. That now, needs to be stopped. Stone dead. There is and a law, law that was Andrew Griffith yeah. has a meeting today. He's the he's the, the, the city minister. To be clear, banks. yeah. And and the, and the fact that he's called the banks into the treasury today to say stop doing this is good. And I think to be honest with you, the government reaction to this in the last week has been superb. So that's one issue. The broader issue, Nick. The broader issue, lives being ruined, legislation that is designed to stop the international drugs gangs from laundering money has become a sledgehammer to miss the nut. It is the innocent men and women out there running small businesses who have been closed down, ruined in many cases, and they've not had anybody to speak for them. The reason I've gone public is I want to be their voice.
0: He wants to be a crusader for everybody who has been deep, not deplatformed, but canceled by a bank or a financial institution.
2: Now you have called for a new legal right to banking services, government sources
3: are saying to me, "Look, we don't need a new law to do this. We can we can toughen up the regulations. Yes, we can do that. We can make clearer that someone's views are not a grounds
2: for refusing them mm. a bank account or removing them from having an existing bank account." And there's a and there's a regulator, there's the Financial Conduct Authority, in order to make sure all of this happens. Are you saying that isn't enough? No, it really isn't enough. You know, you can't live. You can't exist in the modern world without a bank account. Without a bank account, you effectively become a non-person. It is an essential service, and it's worth it.
0: Dear listener, I'm a terrible conspiracy theorist. Not really, but sometimes. Do you get the impression here that this is, that we should be a little bit suspicious about this, just a little bit? Do you think that you could turn this on, like, 180 degrees, maybe, and maybe, in the near future, it might become the law Is that you must have a bank account? Do you know? If we're looking at a cashless society where central bank digital currencies are introduced, okay, into circulation and we've all got to do all of our banking and all of our spending online with no hard cash, do you think people will be compelled to have a bank account? Is that it will be the law to have a bank account? Or am I, as usual, talking through my backside? I'm willing to bet I'm talking through my backside, but it's a bit strange... This one, isn't it? It's all a bit strange.
2: It's worth remembering that we did have in our country the right to a bank account until the post office was privatised. And Sir Vince Cable seemed to forget about that part. And our neighbours, you know, France, Germany, it is a fundamental right. And And I think quite honestly, regardless of people's opinions, regardless of their backgrounds, they deserve the right to a bank account
0: hmm, they deserve the right to a bank account as Nigel Farage. I think we can all agree that banks and other financial institutions shouldn't be permitted to close somebody's account because they don't like the opinions or the views of that person. But this is getting an enormous amount of media coverage. Maybe too much and maybe I might be onto something. You know... He's very concerned about people, he says. Now, he's never shown any concern in the past. This program had its PayPal account deleted, it had its YouTube account deleted, you know that. And that was earning money, that YouTube account, for this program. He was told about this. I told all of them, UKIP. I told all of them. I knew they wouldn't do anything about it, but I did, right? He, he wasn't remotely interested back then. Now all of a sudden he wants to crusade on behalf of people who have been excommunicated by their banks. I just don't buy it. But, and I mean this, no compliment Fisher am I. I'm usually wrong, so maybe you can discount that. Funnily enough, at the end of the interview with Robinson, it went a bit Pete Tong, so it did a little bit.
3: Just before we let you go, Mr Farage, you know, pretty much whatever
0: you do, there are people saying...
3: I know what this is about. He wants to get back into politics again. I know you've run seven times and lost seven times,
2: but are you, are no, no, you. I'm really not going to have this. I, I'm sick to death of your condescending tone. It's about. I simple. was teasing you, it's Mr. Thorne. I was no, teasing no, you. Actually, you weren't. What you should say to people is you're the only person in British history who's won two national elections leading two different parties. Think let's try that aside. Are, shall are you coming me? back then, given your previous success? No. I'm now a champion and a crusader for men and women who've been closed down by yeah. the banks, and I want cultural changes within the banks.
0: He is a champion and a crusader for the little people like you and me, dear listener. It is um, interesting that one. We'll we'll come back to it, I suppose. Hi to Scouse, Andy, who cannot wait. Well, he doesn't say that. He's really looking forward to hearing me speak with David about John Lennon a bit later on. As am I, Andy, because I I know what is supposed to have happened on that fateful day in 19... Ah, go on. Make a fool of yourself. When was it? 1981, was it, or 1980? I'm thinking 1980 it was. I know. It's been a long day. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. Right, Mark Chapman, who's still alive and well, maybe not well, in prison, we will talk about White David Believes there is far more to the John Lennon story than people know. Hi to Julie, who says, just went to pay my taxes in the bank, Richie. They asked me, had I ID? I said, well, I'm not likely to pay anybody else's taxes. And the woman in the bank, or the man in the bank, said, "Uh, well, I'm asking you just in case it's money laundering. Indeed. Hi to Baz, who says, looking at the weather out of my window, it appears we have what is known as asymptomatic climate change in the UK. Good man, Baz. And Carol from Waterford has been in touch. Hi, Carol. Richie, did you see the Greg Wallace The British Miracle Meet? It was on Channel 4 a couple of days ago. I didn't, Carol, but I've been reading about it. Greg Wallace, who's better known, I suppose, as one of the presenters of Celebrity... No, MasterChef and the spin-off Celebrity MasterChef and Professional MasterChef and all the rest of it. He's put out a spoof documentary, hasn't he? about human meat. So I haven't watched it, Carol, but something tells me I really ought to watch it to see is it any good and what's really going on with it. It is uh, nearly 11 minutes past five. Farage. What do you reckon, dear listener? Why now, you know? Speaking of accounts being closed down... Keir Starmer leads the Labour Party these days. He was on BBC Radio 5 Live this morning with Nicholas Campbell. I certainly
1: don't think anybody should be refused banking services because of their political views, um, whoever they are. Um, He's lying. um, So I don't know the extent of this, but that certainly shouldn't be the case.
0: He's not been reading the papers or listening to the news. I don't know the extent of this. I would have just gone for him straight away. If I was Campbell. You're not watching the news then Kier, no. You're not reading the papers, no, no. Fine leader you make. Obviously, I mean that that's save in extreme circumstances, you know, terrorism etc,
1: but um as a broad principle, nobody should be refused banking because of their political views. Have they got too much power when it comes to individual people? Well, I'm surprised that to hear these stories of banks um, taking into account political views, if indeed they are, I I don't know that we've got to the bottom of this, Um, but, you know, that shouldn't happen and certainly shouldn't be a reason for refusing someone banking services.
0: Now, it's Keir Starmer. Here's an interesting comment from a bloke called William Clouston. Now, I'm thinking it's Clouston, C-L-O-U-S-T-O-N. He's the leader of the Social Democratic Party. Yawn. Yeah, yawn, yawn. If you like, I don't mind. Um, he talks about people these days using companies or corporations as vehicles to push their political agendas and to push their activism. It's a bit of a new thing, isn't it? Well, relatively new. William Clouston, Social Democratic Party leader, on Talk TV. At the root of this, why has this happened? Well, because the people, people activists, have got into
4: organisations and view the organisation as a vehicle for their activism, mm. not for a vehicle for doing what the primary purpose of the thing is. Right. And this is happening everywhere. You know, I, I believe it or not, I'm, I'm, I occasionally attend church, I'm not a believer, but I, I attended an Anglican church in central London about three weeks ago, about three months ago. And I couldn't believe what I saw. You know, he might have a sort of form of worship, or whatever, no, it was,
0: a, it was about activism. It was about activism. He was in an Anglican church to say a few prayers, mass, there's a lot to be said for a good mass so he was in mass he was in the anglican church right and there was activism going on and, it, I, and i'm not making this up mike at the end of the service they had a
4: series of announcements about various activities one of which included where you could pick up
0: your placard to campaign for net zero wow so at the end of the sermon the end of the church service. There were some announcements about things like, um, don't forget now we have a we have a baking sale in the car park St Francis next Tuesday morning. Let's say a prayer also for Mr Murphy who's in hospital having a hip replacement. Let's say a prayer for him. Keep him in your prayers and let's go and campaign. For net zero.
4: <laughs> I mean, I'm not joking. This this is you know, I you know, I thought that's we might. God. honestly that's I'm literally. not making it up. And I, I said to Rod Little, I mentioned to Rod Little about He
0: spoke to Rod Little from the Times about it, and he thought it was a bit mad. I think that's where that story ends. But yeah, activism mad stuff. Hi to Kev who says, hi to Gillian who says, you know when they're lying, their lips are moving. Kev says, Richie, the Farage saga is the forerunner to personalised ESG rollout. Thank you. Uh, Alexandra came on to say, Richie, it's definitely very suspicious that Farage is constantly on the MSM banging on about this. Grace Ann says, a bit suspicious about it, myself, Richie. Too much public time on it when other things are happening. Steve says, of course you'll require a digital bank account for a digital currency, otherwise you'll be excluded from society. Good point, Steve. Steve James. There'll be no high street banks or cash machines eventually. Good man. You are absolutely right. And Antz was on to say the Farage banking thing stinks of a psyop not sure of the end goal, but a large chunk of people believe. Nat West et al., we were within their rights simply because it is Farage. Almost like he was selected for uh, the role. And hi to Laura. Hi Laura. And thanks for that lovely message. <laughs> Which I... Come on, I'll read it out. I love you, Richie, says Laura. Thank you, Laura. You've made me day. It's uh, coming up for 15 and a half minutes past 5 the Richie Allen show Peter Gregson will be live I think from Edinburgh shortly trade unionist activist yes political candidate he he doesn't like Israel very much and what Israel does to the indigenous people of Palestine he doesn't like it right fair enough and he has been active in 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 campaigning for Palestinian rights for many, many, many years. He was recently suspended from being the treasurer for his local scout troops, something he was doing for nine years. That's not good. We'll talk to Peter about that a little bit later on. John Lennon and Jean-Anne came on to correct me. Jean-Anne is always there, you know. Can't get rid of Jean-Anne. Jean-Anne will will always have the answer. And thank God for her. Um, The 8th of December, 1980 was when John Lennon was gunned down in New York City. One of the, regardless of whether you like the music of the Beatles or John Lennon's music or not, one of the greatest artists of the 20th or any other century, in my opinion. And he's, he's kind of growing on me lately, would you believe, John? Well, not John Lennon, but the Beatles. A kind of growing on me. Hi to Davy. who says, Richie, I wish the schools here in Northern Ireland would go back. June was flaming. Here, since July, it ain't stopped. Raining every day in August is set to be no better. You need some of this global warming, he says. Donald says the US government tried to extradite John Lennon but lost the case in court, allowing John to remain in the USA. A smoking gun, if ever there was one, for the assassination of John, says Donald. Thank you, Donald. That's an interesting point. Salford Pete's been on. Hi, Salford Pete. Um, Yeah, I did update on the Patreon. It's working now. I eventually managed to get the money that was withheld. So, fingers crossed, it'll it'll be okay uh, for the foreseeable future. But thanks very much for that, Salford Pete. Dean has been on to say something about George Michael. Speaking to Hard Talk BBC in 2003 about his opposition to the Iraq war and his support of Palestine. And Dean reckons that George Michael died in suspicious circumstances. Did he? Could he have been a victim because he was brave enough to criticise the establishment? I don't know, Dean. Your guess is as good as mine. Leslie reckons Chapman went on record and said he shot John Lennon to become world famous. Yet he pleaded guilty, avoiding a show trial he would have craved for if he did do it. That's a good point, Leslie. If Lenin was indeed shot by Chapman because Chapman craved the limelight, why would he forego a chance to have a trial and and all of that malarkey? Absolutely. Patricia's been on to say, Random comment, I thought it was interesting that the UK is sending electric bikes to the Ukrainian military. Allegedly, they can sneak up on the Russians. Funny, considering the electricity issues in Ukraine, says Patricia, that is funny. That is a little bit funny, to say the least. Um, Younger couples, increasingly, when they are polled, are saying they do not have any plans to have children. Isn't that interesting? Where exactly? Well, here in the UK, for one, a number of recent polls. More and more people in their 20s who are coupled up already are saying, we don't want to have children. Now, when they are asked to expand on their decision, they give multiple reasons. Climate change, funnily enough, is a reason which that comes up. Comes up, climate change. I don't want to add to the CO2 production. I don't want to have a child and all the rest of it. But, but, Tim Montgomery from Conservative Home and formerly of Sky News, he was speaking to Times Radio today, and he reckons it's the housing crisis and the cost of living crisis driving young couples away from having the babbies, Tim Montgomery.
4: This is a multifaceted um, problem affecting the Western world, and I do regard it as a problem. Um, but uh, I'm sort of largely signed up to the housing theory of everything, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. But, you know, the biggest contraceptive really is the house price, you know, that the average young person faces. And so, um, yeah, nearly every social problem I can think of can be reduced by building houses. And um, I'm a conservative, as you know. And um, but if Labour can, when likely they form the next government, they can begin to build houses, begin to uh, put um, new towns across the Southeast and where we most need them and really turn the tide on this rising house prices thing, which has meant that so many young people don't feel they have a stake in the future. And if you don't feel you have a stake in the future, why should you have children? And that would be a worthwhile thing from um,
0: Yeah. So they they don't think they have a stake in the future, but also as I mentioned earlier, some twenty somethings and thirty somethings, they have been convinced that there isn't a future. So don't have children because they'll be left in some sort of post apocalyptic wasteland. After we burn down the planet with our CO2, 21 minutes past the hour, Isabel was on to say, has the Farage Bank News got something to do with the digitalisation of money? Like a way, for example, to reassure everyone that the politicians and the government are 100% behind our right of access to our money, regardless of our political and social views. Good point. I think that might be right. And James has come on to say, has anyone else noticed that old Ears, He means King Charles the the third, is it? I stopped counting. Uh, Joggers is getting a pay rise from eighty six million pounds to one hundred and twenty five million pounds. That's something I didn't know.
4: Comedy podcast live: an
1: evening of politically incorrect comedy and commentary. <laughs> remember eight o'clock on a thursday stand on your front door and clap at the sky you guys getting bored with television yet
2: the plots are getting so ridiculous and the characters are getting so like out of there and none of it's believable like i don't know if you watch the same show as me it's called uh, the news <laughs> Thank God for the BBC. We could not have had a pandemic without them. Tell you what, I want to go with my tinfoil hat, one of those tinfoil moon buggies people think we rode around the moon on. If you need six boosters for any
0: product in the world, that shit don't work.
1: Andrew Lawrence, Abby Roberts. Alistair Williams, Stanford, July 27th. Katie Hopkins, Newport, July 28th. You will laugh, you will feel better, and you will realise
4: that you're not alone. So do grab your tickets, comedypodcast.live. It's the BBG,
3: not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen show, live from the magnificent city of Salford.
0: Yes, and a good afternoon to Jimbo. Hi, Jimbo. Thank you for your message. He says he enjoyed listening to Giovanni De Stefano yesterday. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I enjoyed it myself. It's a nice change of pace. Hi to Kelly, who says George Michael wrote a song called This Christmas I Gave You My Heart. And he died from a heart attack on Christmas Day. His boyfriend said he was sleeping in his car on that night, not in George's house. No explanation was given why. Another deep state bump off, maybe on that particular day that came in from Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. And Ian says the younger generation not having children will be a disaster for retirees 20 to 40 years from now. I'm 35, says Ian, and resigned to the likelihood that I'll never see a state pension. How could there be, he says, at that point? Thank you very much, Ian. (laughs) The Richie Allen Show live RichieAllen.co.uk, The Richie Allen Show app, Fab Radio 2 in Manchester, multiple platforms. Peter Gregson joins me after this from Sin Lizzy. This is The Boys Are Back in Town. 24 minutes past the hour. Welcome to Wednesday's programme. Thin Lizzy, The Boys Are Back in Town on The Richie Allen Show. Good evening, welcome. Wednesday's programme. With you till 7 o'clock. Don't forget a little bit later on, David Whelan will be on the programme. He's writing a book and making a film about the assassination of John Lennon, December 1980. Let's welcome back to the programme a gentleman who came on with me about four years ago. He's an activist, he's been a political candidate, a trade unionist. We like trade unionists on this programme. You know, until recently, he was treasurer at the 150th Craig Allman Scout Group in Edinburgh. And he'd been doing that for nine years. Isn't that a great thing, volunteering like that? But he was suspended. And it appears that he was suspended because of his activism around supporting the beleaguered people of Palestine. What's going on? It seems that cancel culture is all the rage. Let's welcome back to the programme Peter Gregson. Pete, you're very welcome back. It's been ages. How are you?
3: Hello, hi. Nice, nice, to talk to you again, Richie. It's hi. nice, and
0: I think when we spoke last, it was you were having a similar problem with the GMB, again because of your support of of Palestine. Let's talk about your work with the Craig Almond Scout Group. Lovely thing. I love volunteers, Pete. I think it's marvelous. So you were doing the Treasury work for them, and then you're not doing it. What happened?
3: So well, anyway, I mean, I mean. People think scouting is a bit unhip, but, you know, if there's nothing else in your area, what do you do? So yeah. when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in Aberdeen Um, from the age of 12 to 16. Uh, scouts were a huge thing for me, you know, camping, building fires, cooking, hiking, playing football, like things that I never got a chance to do otherwise. I was a Catholic growing up in Aberdeen, a Protestant city, and, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't meet people just you know through the normal way i wasn't going to join the bbs but the scout seemed to me to be you know impartial so i did them for a few years and then when i was 16 you know i discovered girls and stuff so i left but then <laughs>
0: yeah, it i was a so youth cool. worker
3: for 25 years and then um when when uh, uh, my kids started going to this beavers and the cups because again there was no there is no youth provision where i live now in edinburgh um from 2006 uh, they were going and then 2012 I was at the Scouts AGM and they said they needed a new treasurer, so I volunteered and uh, My kids stopped going in about 2016, but I carried on because they haven't got anywhere. Nobody wants to be treasurer It's one of these jobs that nobody wants to do So I was like organizing the finances and payment for youth leader expenses, you know fundraising at festivals um, Preparing and submitting the accounts for the Scout group for its charity registration and um, Claiming gift aid from parents for, uh, you know, the tax people. Organising AGMs, Christmas sing-alons, etc. I got the Chief Scouts Award from Bear Grills in 2018. I was and going then, to bring it you know, up, yeah.
0: That's a wonderful achievement, by the way. Well done. <laughs> I was
3: just, you know, they, I think they just give it for a long service. But yeah. basically, there's only three of us really that are on the exec that run the whole thing. I about 50 kids that go. Anyway, I was at this conference last year for Palestine. Allowed that in New York, actually, and then I got this call saying, "You know, can you get in touch? Uh, you know, what's go? Well, we've got to ask you a question." This was from like the district commissioner. He's the one kind of above the group scout leader. And uh, and when I got back, I called him and he says, "Are you involved in the campaign against bogus anti-Semitism?" And uh, and I said, "Yeah." And he says, "Right. Well." That's enough, thank you. And then I got a letter saying I was suspended. Um, And there was no meetings. There was no explanation of what the allegations were. I knew it was something to do with bogus anti-semitism thing. So nobody calls um, you in
0: and says, right, Pete, let's have a sit down now. Let's talk about these opinions and what have you. So, so no. th- they don't do that. So the campaign against bogus anti-semitism, that's something you set up. And I'm guessing this has something to do with what some people believe was a witch hunt against former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. When he was Labour leader, this witch hunt that claimed that the party was a rotten... Uh, to the core with anti-Semitism, and that it was down to him. Is that why you set it up?
3: Well, no. I, well, I set it up because I got expelled from the GMB, yeah, and then I had to leave Labour. I'd been active in Labour for forty years, and and lots of people were getting expelled. And I, you know, my, this was getting reported. The Guardian did this terrible article, you know, implying I was an anti-Semite, and you know, I complained, it got nowhere. Glasgow Herald attacked me, I complained I got nowhere. You know, um, my kids came to see me and in, in, came to talk talk to me in 20, um 2019, you know, when this was all at its height and said, Dad, why do you hate Jews? And I, I don't hate Jews, I've never hated Jews, I've lots of Jewish friends, you know. Oh, That's, um, that's a terrible thing. That's, that's a terrible thing. Head
0: so head head. the kids were, were, were reading this stuff in the press and well, it, 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 and it con- yeah. and their friends and it convinced them that you were some sort of rabid anti-semite so they came well, to I try and talk had you had around you.
3: and this and this was like so then 2020 came and COVID came and i and i just got so depressed from all this attack that i just gave up completely i didn't do any campaign nothing for two years zero uh and it wasn't until 2022 when I started feeling better uh, about myself and COVID was just coming out, and I thought, you know what, we should do? We should all get together, all the people have been expelled, and we'll set up a campaign group saying, you know, we're not standing for this. So that was where the campaign for bogus anti Semitism came. It was people who'd been expelled from one group or another for criticizing Israel, because it's bogus, you know, you, you criticize Israel, it's nothing to do with anti Semitism, it's just saying this is an illegal state. Um. Anyway, you know, they've got this IHRA definition that's been adopted all over the country, including by the union I was in, the GMB, that said if you criticize Israel, if you say Israel's racist, you're a Jew hater. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But this is the definition that they use. And and all these organizations, most political parties, apart from the Greens, all the trade unions, apart from the PCS, all the big unions, most of the 30%, 40% of local authorities, the police, the governments, Everyone adopting this and they keep pushing like 200 universities. And, and if you start criticizing Israel, that's you could, um, you know, you get expelled. So, what happened was that somebody complained about me to the scouts. Now, what they actually said in the allegation, the letter, eventually they, they told me, it. Um, I only got it two weeks ago, they told me why I was being expelled. So, thereafter, a year of not knowing, um, I finally found out, you know, a year later why I was expelled. Now, what had happened was that I, in 2017, before I got involved in campaigning for Palestine, you know, I wasn't doing anything at Palestine. I was in the Labour Party, nothing like that, you know. Um, and uh, the the I put an advert up for the group, the scout group. They, we couldn't get enough people to volunteer to go the executive committee. So I said to the exec, to people in the executive look, I put an advert up in the Edinburgh Volunteer Centre. And they said, fine, do that. So I did that, and I went to the Volunteer Centre, and they said, oh, you'll need to give us a phone number. And we don't have a phone, the scouts don't have a phone. So I gave them my landline number as a contact point. And, uh, and, and that was it. Now, we never got anybody through the Volunteer Centre. It was a waste of time. After a couple of months, the advert came down, and you know we just gave up with that. However, five years later, I'd set up the campaign against bogus anti-Semitism, And some bloody Zionist, uh, you know, I only set it up in in March, 2022, and and in the second of May, 2022, they went to the Scouts and said, "Oh, look, this guy's used his phone number for the Scouts and for the campaign against bogus scientific So the, the implication
0: being that you were taking your political points of view into your scouting volunteering, and that's something now, you shouldn't be doing. That 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 was of their course, allegation. Yeah,
3: because you know I'm a volunteer. At the time when I let, I mean, I, I never made any connection between, you know, our political campaigning and, you know, the scouts. I never mentioned anything at the scouts to do with politics. Yes, you know, that's, that's, I mean, we've, we've got an Israeli Jewish group scout leader and he babbled on about Israel. but I never said anything against it. Uh, and strangely enough, he supported me for the last year when I've been suspended. He was saying this is unreasonable. You should criticize, if you want to criticize Israel, you can, you should be able to do that. But, you know, the people above him, someone higher up in the scouts, was out from our guts. You know, the whole idea for them that there is such a thing as bogus anti-Semitism is in itself an anti-Semitic suggestion, because they all think all anti-Semitism is real. So they are not prepared to consider that there is such a thing as bogus anti-Semitism. They're not prepared to accept that the IHRA definition is, as the Palestinian trade unions and civil societies pointed out, it's a fraudulent and politicized definition of anti-Semitism because it does nothing to protect Jews. It's only there to protect Israel.
0: Tell me this to, tell know. me this peter tell P- Peter Gregson Pete Gregson is our guest now um i'm going to give you a website where where you can go uh read more about what Peter is talking about it's onepalestine.land, one palestine dot land and that's o n e palestine dot land trade unionist, political activist, the former labor party member and political candidate himself, Peter Gregson is on the line now um allow me to do my job you you said a few minutes ago, some bloody Zionist. Now, there are those who listen to programs like this, and they say things to me after programs like this. They get in touch with me, and they say, Richie, why didn't you pull your guest up on this? When he says, some bloody Zionist, what does he mean by that? What's a Zionist?
3: Zionist is uh, someone who believes that uh, Israel should only be for Jews. You know, that, that Jews deserve a state of their own, and, you know, It should be Israel. This is a Zionist. The whole Zionist movement is what created Israel.
0: Right. Now, later on, I'm absolutely certain I'll get an email from somebody who will accuse you, um, and not just you, but others. They will say, that people have weaponized the term Zionist, as you quite rightly said, a Zionist is somebody who believes that Israel is the, should be the permanent home place of Jewish people. But there are those who will listen to this and they will say, um, that term has been weaponized by people, or it's a term used to hide by people who genuinely do not like Jews and they will always say, no, no, I'm not, I don't dislike Jews, I dislike Israel. But in reality, they use Zionism and terms like that to kind of hide their animosity for Jewish people. What do you say to that? Well,
3: I say, I've just been on tour with a rabbi. I took a rabbi around 15 cities. This is a very famous rabbi, Rabbi David Weiss, who's the leader of the Turek and Well, the international spokesman for the Turek Arta. He came from New York right? Britain. And, uh, and he's quite clear that the Torah is clear that Jews should not have a state. You know, the Songs of Solomon, it spells it all out. Jews should not have a state. This is The whole thing is a concoction by a sort of nationalistic movement from the 1860s, 1870s onwards. They saw all these other countries, Germany and Italy, they get in their own states and they decided they wanted their own state. But these people were atheists. I mean, the people who were original Zionists, you know, Kim Whitesman and the rest of them, they were atheists. They didn't believe in God. Um, they just thought they would use the Bible, and it's the Christian Bible, the evangelical Christian Bible they're using. There's atheists using the Christian Bible to lay a claim to Palestine.
0: The old I mean, testament, this
3: isn't here. that. The Orthodox Jews don't accept Israel, they won't go there. You go to any um, Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, you won't find the flag of Israel anywhere. You know, they, they don't recognize it because they say it's bogus. This is like, a, uh, it's an illegal colony. That's what they think. And that's why Jews wouldn't go there up until 1940, you know, and Hitler came along. But they wouldn't go there because they said, you know, the, the Torah is quite clear about where we should be and where we should go and how we should live. Um, it's know, interesting. Messiah comes along, that'll change things but without any Messiah, this is it we're fine, we're, here. we're, we're, we're staying where we, you know, we landed up that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me that when there is a gather- gathering in Manchester, when there is a pro Palestinian rights gathering or rally, you, you will see or you will meet a lot of Jewish people. I, I went to see the Roger Waters gig in the arena in Manchester recently there were a number of people there um, in support of Roger Waters, funnily enough, Pete and some of them were Jewish lads. They were Jewish guys.
3: Well, the, the big in Manchester, um, Manchester and London are the two centres for in Britain for the nativity car. So I was there a few months ago. One of my heroes, the most bravest man I've ever met, I think, is Rabbi Aaron Cohen, who, who lives in Manchester. He's an amazing guy. You know, he these people, these Jews who stand up to say that Israel has no right to exist, they get the most enormous amount of trouble. I mean, this guy's had his car backed out. He was showing me bullet holes, at, you know, pistol, air pistol holes in his in his windows. Yeah, he was
0: on this programme. He came on this programme yeah. with me twice to talk about that. Rabbi Aaron Cohen of Manchester, a Jewish gentleman, as Pete said, has 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 had the most egregious violence against him and his family because he says the state of Israel should not exist. It has no basis in international law. It shouldn't exist. He, we, we talked about Sykes picot about the Balfour Declaration, and and of course his deeply held religious view mm. that Israel shouldn't exist. But, um, and the Zionists
3: hate him, and they hate me, and they hate anyone who criticises Israel that's the thing about Zionism. They're terrified of, of their racist common being criticized.
0: Who do we blame, Pete? Let, let me ask you this. Who do we, I've had this out before with politicians, way back, right? And other political commentators who do we blame so we say there is a zionist movement there is a group of people determined to shut down anti-israel criticism or criticism of how israel conducts itself so they're hell bent on shutting it down and silencing people and getting people suspended like as you've been suspended from the scouts which is a terrible thing i believe right but who who should we reserve our wrath four. I mean, why are we not focusing it's on really the politicians? It, right? Yeah. But but what about we have a government <laughs> in this country and surely the government is responsible for this more so than the, you know, political zionists who've got their we we might disagree with it. We We do disagree with it. I do. But they have their deeply held political convictions or their convictions about Israel. So they do what they do. But ultimately, it's governments and it's the law that lets them away with it, right?
3: Well, the funny thing is the judiciary, I mean, there's a lot of Jewish barristers, um, great people like Michael Mansfield, who are Jewish and who despise Israel because they see it's illegal and what they do is illegal. Um, you know, in the judiciary, there are people who are, you know, supportive, and they've given me help over the last six months. When I tried to get the rabbi into this country, the UK lawyers for Israel, who are, um, you know, I think you think lawyers are hard work, you know, you take Israeli lawyers, they're like totally rabid. And they um, tried to stop him getting into the country, they tried to get Suella Bravman to, to prevent him flying into Britain, saying, you know, he was going to divide communities. Now, this was something called the Muslim and Jew tour, and he was actually going to bring together, because we I'd arranged this tour for him to go around mosques and Muslim community centres in Britain, we went to 15 states. And, and, and the Muslims loved them, because they know that what, what Israel makes us into is a religious war. Israel says, all the Arabs want to kill us. Therefore, you know, we we need uh, more and more weapons to prevent that. Now, this is not um, a religious war, though they like to paint it as such. Uh, And the Orthodox Jews and Muslims, um, you know, they see this is not a religious war, but that's what's stirred up. So this is stirred up by Zionists who foment Islamophobia in this country and all over the world. Because the more they can paint themselves as victims, the more money they get in arms. That's why they get $3.8 billion a year from America, because they make out that if they don't, you know, the Arabs will come and kill them all, which is just nonsense. But this is this is what they do. They breed fear. And in Britain, they breed fear. So, you know, you have like, the likes of David deal going around, you know, saying, oh, everyone hates Jews, which is garbage. They don't. You know, this is...
0: No, uh, but there is, Pete, team. hang on, okay. hang on, let me let me interject. Um, look, I, I have my my own personal feelings about David Badil. He invited me to take part in a documentary about anti-Semitism um, that he made for Channel 4. He, he invited me to speak to him in Salford, his producers did, until I realised it was a stitch-up. And um, mm-hmm. I was happy to do it so long as I had a film crew of my own to document everything that was said before it got stitched up in the edit. I think David Baddiel is a failed comic and a failed writer, um, looking mm-hmm. for something to keep himself in the public eye. I don't actually believe that David Baddiel means this, but I've got to say this. Look, I know Jewish people in this city. In fact, I got off the phone to a Jewish lawyer today who's um, helping me out with, uh, with a, a personal problem, a personal legal matter. There is anti-Semitism around. Uh, now, I am... I've said it on this programme and I'll say it now. I don't believe that there is any more animosity towards Jewish people than there is towards black people or people from Asia or even people from the Far East. I don't believe that. I think we have a very tolerant society. But that being said, there are people who um, say the most heinous things about Jewish people online. Some of them don't try to hide it. There are others who we, we know... We know from the papers here in Manchester, from time to time we see grave graveyards desecrated in North Manchester and elsewhere. So there is a bit of it. There is mm. a bit of anti-Semitism. No
3: Helped by Israel, so so you know Israel really stirs this stuff up because every time you know people see Palestinians getting killed by people in this country who who jump to their defence. You know the what's it called the UK Board of Deputies and the British of the, you know, the, the British rabbi, they both say, oh, you know, Gaza gets bombed, stupid. Oh no, that's well, quite all right, you know, Israel's got every right to defend itself, and that's the problem is you've got two hundred and fifty thousand Jews in the UK, and probably what they say about sixty to seventy percent of them support Israel. You know, Israel, right or wrong, no matter what it does, it's all right. How do
0: we know that, Pete? Where did you get that stat from? That sixty or seventy well, percent no support support Israel? About.
3: You can find it on our website, but there's been lots of surveys done. Um, not two quite important surveys that looked at the proportion of Jews that supported Israel.
0: Because that's not been my experience. My experience has been, when meeting Jewish people, they are either A, agnostic, which some people don't like, but they're entitled to be, they're agnostic, or B, they don't support the settlements and they don't support the violence against the Palestinians. Now, that's not obviously a scientific poll, but it's been my experience that pretty much most Jews either don't care or they do care for the Palestinians?
3: Well, that's not the ones I'm meeting. So I, I went to university in Bristol, and I had some great, there was a lot of Jewish people there, great friends, you know, people from London, Leeds, whatever, moved to Bristol, and, uh, you know, they were great friends. We never talked to I never ever talked to each They were best friends. And, you know, we had kids, you know, our kids played with their kids, whatever, you know, everything This went on for years and years and years. And it was only when 2018 kicked off, And this whole bogus anti-Semitism thing came up with with Corbyn, because they couldn't tolerate Corbyn as a leader, because no way did Israel want a prime minister that was critical of their role. Uh, And, you know, Corbyn's vote for the Palestinians was just for them, was like the worst thing that could happen. Because we made Israel, you know, Israel's our colony, we made it. Uh, And that's why they can't tolerate any criticism from Britain, because we're like their mother, you know. Um, and this is why, uh, you know, they, 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 they prevent probably even more than in the USA, this obsession. You know, I actually heard recently, you know, it said with Stanley and was in this interview like a week ago, and this guy said to him, you know, it's it's now more, um, it's now safer to criticise Israel in Israel than it is in the UK. How mad is that? Never got any freedom of speech now because... Zionists, and I'm including this um, people that used to be my friends that have now stopped talking to me because they say, "Oh, yeah, if we didn't have Israel, we wouldn't have anywhere to go." Um, they, they're the ones that are, you know, attacking me at every opportunity. Anyone who puts that, have got one that works in my office. He's a Polish guy. He hates me.
0: How do you put up with that, or how do you how do you coexist working with somebody who who hates you?
3: Just carry on. Just try and ignore it. But you know. He, he clearly dislikes me, and he had a go at me when when I first got suspension from the DMV. I'm like, you know, there's nothing I can do. I mean, you just have to get along. I mean, it's a work environment, so you can't do anything about it. But
0: and this you know, um
3: this I'm telling everyone I'm an NPC, mate. and then they say, I mean, the other people in the team, you know, there's thirty obviously. You so other people say, well, not an NPC, So you
0: have so you have some support there. This is happening yeah, to you. Your suspension
3: will damage your reputation at every opportunity. They and... want to paint you as as a Nazi, as no better than Hitler, which is what the whole thing's designed to do. You know, they want all these anti-racist campaigners to be no better than Hitler, and that's they've been very successful over the last few week, and at their peak right now, you know, they did the Roger Waters, they've done Ken Loach, now they're moving into the youth organizations, youth movement in Manchester, they had the director of the Whitworth Gallery fired, you know, this is the, the, there's a they've got they've got more powerful than ever what with Sir Keith Keir Starmer declared himself as a devout Zionist. Yeah, you know. so uh, I didn't I did I didn't realise
0: sorry Pete, I didn't realise that the director of the Whitworth Gallery was was ejected from his position yeah. because you know, of about, because he sure, criticised Israel.
3: No, well he had an exhibition and he had something in the exhibition which supported Palestine. And they got them fired from the university. That is that because I,
0: I can't verify that. So I have to take your word for that.
3: Guardian. I mean, I've got it on our website. We've got a thing on our website, a page which is called the rogues gallery, which is all the people who've been unfairly um, fired or dismissed or penalized for criticizing Israel. And we've also got a legal page, which are people who've taken this to court to try and defend themselves. So, you know, we try and document all the stuff that happened
0: we um we know we know this obviously very well on this program um i've had it myself in the national press because of people i've interviewed people like yourself i suppose back in 2019 and others and um i've had it i i've had a situation where the board of deputies told the conservative party that um they would um they told the conservative party that Desmond Swain had come on this program and he shouldn't have done. I don't the,
3: Desmond Swinish, sorry.
0: Yeah, well he's a Tory. He's a backbench Tory MP. Anyway, the okay. upshot was the Conservative Party chief whip told Swain that if he came back on the Richie Allen show, he'd lose the whip. This was two years ago. Oh. So we see this all the time here. I'm pretty oh. I'm pretty chilled about it. You know, I will write to them to, to the Board of Deputies and invite them to debate me you know on the program but obviously that's never going to happen they never want mm-hmm. to face their critics on on programs like this of course they don't but peter you know i i i i never i never like to be negative but i i think this not just for you but for a show like this and for others it's kind of a losing battle isn't it i mean
3: well i've got a plan
0: go on <laughs> share the plan with it. me
3: right. okay so with them getting the expelled from the scouts, that just shows how ludicrous this whole thing's got. Okay, people have accepted that folk get expelled from political parties or even trade unions for criticising Israel. But when it moves into youth organisations, like volunteering, you know, people helping out at a local community centre, this is where you know there was a survey last week publishing that 25% of the British public support Palestine and only 10% support Israel. So we're on a witch hunt for those 25% of the population who support Palestine. You probably do a lot of volunteering who, who are going to start finding themselves being excluded if they criticize Israel. So, you know, things have got so ludicrous that, you know, they're even doing the scouts. So that's why I've got a petition together, a petition to Bear grills. <laughs> who's the chief scout. Amazingly, you know, yeah. and I, I'm trying to get people to sign this petition. I've had 570 signatures in the last few weeks. I want to get to a thousand, and then I think try and get it into the mainstream media. Because if you get something like this in the mainstream media, you begin to chip away at their power.
0: Yeah, but you know um, better. You know they won't touch it. The media—they just won't touch well,
3: it. I don't know. I think. I think. Okay. So what I've done. Okay, that's one thing. I'll do this petition. If I get to a thousand, I'll do it at a press release. And I do know quite a lot of journalists because I spent my whole life posing up to journalists. Um, and someone might pick it up. And they might not. And they cover some of my story. But what I need to do then is is take it to the conferences. So I'm going to be going to the, the Lib Dem conference, the Tory conference, and the Labour conference, all of which, you know, in September in three cities a week apart. And I'm going to swamp them with flyers of 5,000 of these. And I'm going to be just be... Talking this stuff, I'm going to, we're going to put on the Muslim and Jew tour during the Labour conference, putting a Muslim and Jew on the stage saying that Israel shouldn't exist. Uh, hopefully, uh, <laughs> I mean, the- you, might, you might get some coverage, yeah.
0: The problem, the but, problem, you know, this,
3: this might get coverage, you might not, but the point being is you have to keep making a stand. This is running up to an election, this is an important point. I just had a, an email from my MP, the Lib Dem MP, just a few minutes ago. And she says, you know, they're just formulating their manifesto, but they're quite clear that they support BDS. You know, there are parties that, that aren't going the way of of the Tories and Labour that have got concern for Palestine and prepared to put it in their manifesto.
0: Let's hope so. One Palestine dot land. One Palestine dot land. Peter Gregson, by the way, a very good friend of mine. Who, until recently, was a senior security consultant at Manchester University, um, has confirmed what you said to me about the man losing his job at the art gallery. Pete, not that I was suggesting you are a liar, but this is a live radio show, and I'm I'm mm-hmm. embarrassed. I didn't know that because I read the bloody broadsheets cover to cover every day, but I didn't realise that was in the Guardian. Well, I must want have missed to it. Make
3: a fuss of I tried. I wrote to him. Tried to get him to make a fuss. But you know what it's like. You know. He went quiet. Run- you don't get another job very easily.
0: Right. So if you ranted about it and if you came out strongly about it, he might find it difficult to secure oh, yeah. another post. I mean, yeah. this,
3: is, this is like, because most people think anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism. They read the dictionary definition, which is, you know, prejudice or hatred against Jews. Most people don't know about the IHRA definition. It's been adopted, not by rank and file. I mean, it wasn't like the trade union had a meeting and said, you know,
0: how do our members feel?
1: None of that ever happened.
3: in not one instance when this awful definition was adopted. Peter, when just before just leadership. before
0: we run out of time, can you explain to our listeners what about the IHRA anti-Semitism definition? What is the most offensive thing about that in that definition?
3: Well, okay, there's eleven clauses in it, yeah. and seven of them relate to Israel. So this has got, they give 11 examples of what constitutes, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and seven of them are about Israel. They're not about Jews, this is about Israel. The whole thing was cooked up by um, the, you know, the Israelis along with the US State Department, starting in 2000, Dina an Israeli historian, who worked with um, people to create this new definition, even some of the folk that stern. One of the guys that wrote it is horrified as how it's being used, because it was never meant to be used in the way it is being used. But it's been weaponized by the um, International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which went to use the Holocaust as a thing to hit people with, saying, well, if you criticise Israel, you're you're h- hating all Jews. And it's garbage. But this is what's running our freedom of speech in this country.
0: Peter, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your time. We'll pick it up again in the uh-huh. in the future, um, we will just just drop us a line, go to land to find out more about what you've been hearing from Peter in the last uh, if, half an hour. If you're
3: interested in the IHRA definition, there's a page in there about it, and you can actually go down to a model motion, so you can put this through at your straight, year, you know, your party, political party branch, asking them to adopt it, and you know, God knows if you get anywhere, but I think it's important to make a stand.
0: Appreciate your time, Pete. Thanks for coming back on.
3: Okay, thanks a lot, Richie. You're very welcome.
0: Bye for now. Pete Gregson, Peter Gregson, who uh, has been a political candidate, has been a trade unionist, an activist, um, he is a pro-Palestinian campaigner, Uh, for many years, 25 years working with uh, younger people, with distinction it must be said, until recently uh, he had been nine years the treasurer of his local scout troop and then he was basically cancelled, kicked out, suspended because of his campaigning for the rights of the people of Palestine. Yeah, nobody debates anybody anymore. Nobody says, let's have a chat about why it is you feel as you do and let's just dig down into whether or not it is in any way relative to your duties as treasurer, which obviously it obviously couldn't be. You couldn't make an argument that his political opinions about Israel have any bearing or any impact on his job as treasurer. Now if you could, if you, if you could if you could prove or show that somehow he was using his position to talk to scouts, to young lads, you know, and what have you, to to influence them in terms of how they should be thinking about Israel, well, then you might have a point, but that wasn't the case here. It's um, Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. About 90 seconds to the top of the hour. A lot of comment on this. Thank you for your comments um katie has been on to say that she thinks that bear grills has in fact um retired uh i didn't know that i've never been a big fan of those discovery jigs. those those channels so i've never seen seen much of a bear grills uh, pete's just sent me a message um he asked he, he he was meant to mention something and he forgot to mention it so there is a petition Allow me to give you the petition details. It is change.org forward slash scouts, I-H-R-A. I'm going to put this on the podcast notes. So the petition website link is www.change.org forward slash scouts, S-C-O-U-T-S, I-H-R-A. Change.org forward slash scouts, I-H-R-A. A and Scouts, IHRA is all one word, change.org. Will you give it a sign on behalf of Pete Gregson, if you don't mind? He's just asked me to do that via WhatsApp now. We're going to be talking about John Lennon soon enough, by the way. Looking forward to that. Chris came on to say, the dumbest thing about the charge of anti-Semitism is that the Palestinians are the legitimate Semites says Chris. Thank you, Chris, for that comment. That's actually quite right. Wiz came on to ask, why do Jews have their own term for racism, which is anti-Semitism? Or am I missing something, says Wiz. Thank thank you uh, for that. Uh, Hang on, there's so many of these coming in now. And I'm neglecting the website a little bit today. I apologise. You can leave a message via the website RichieAllen.co.uk, or you can leave one via the app. There is an app downloaded via the App Store or Google Play if you're on Android. If you're an Android user, Google Play. I to Colin who says he... Peter is absolutely correct. Israel shouldn't exist. It is an illegal occupation of Palestine supported by the West. That's Colin, uh, who's in Ireland listening. Good evening, uh, Colin. Uh, Jenny's been on to say, there used to be groups regularly holding peaceful demonstrations in support of Palestine and the Palestinians. But Jenny says for some reason, I haven't seen one for a long time. I suspect they may have been banned from holding such demonstrations. There should be no country, no government and no organisation that is beyond criticism. It is so wrong. Look, I agree, but I also know, and I've seen this in the independent media, And you know I've interviewed such people. There are people in the indie media who believe that everything that we are enduring right now, the creeping totalitarianism, the Great Reset, there are those who blame it on the Jews and who believe it is a Jewish plot. That is nonsense, in my opinion. Nonsense. And it's not because I'm currying favour with anybody. It's not a Jewish plot. It's not a, even an Israeli plot but there are those who believe that I say they should be permitted to believe whatever it is they like and they should have freedom of speech to say it in fact I have interviewed one or two such people over the years on this programme and I have argued with them I thought they were pretty brave to come on not because I'm scary but because there are consequences for saying what it is you really believe but there are those who believe that Jewish people are tainted somehow are dirty even, and that they are a group of people who are are plotting and have plotted forever to basically take over the world. There are those people. Those people are out there. And those people exist in this country as much as anywhere else, you know? So keep it in mind. It's three minutes past the hour. Uh, This is your Richie Allen Show, Wednesday's programme, speaking about John Lennon shortly. To take us there, self-indulgence tonight, you'll forgive me. It is uh, seven minutes past six. That's Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run from the album Born to Run, 1975. Uh, This is the Richie Allen Show. Welcome back. Now, John Lennon was murdered on the 8th of December, 1980. He was 42 at the time. Mark David Chapman is in prison, remains in prison to this day. The official story is that enraged by John Lennon's rich lifestyle, enraged by comments made by John back in the 60s, that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, um, Chapman determined that he would kill him and that he was inspired by the fictional character Holden Caulfield from J.D. Salinger's novel The Catcher in the Rye. That's the official version of events. Let's welcome to the programme... A gentleman who's got, well, he's got a different take on what happened all those years ago. Find him on Substack. He is davidwhelan.substack.com. He is writing a book and making a film about the assassination of John Lennon. It is incredibly fascinating. Let's welcome David Whelan to the show. David, you're very kind to come on. How are you?
1: Hi, Richie. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: What an incredibly interesting thing. It, it Sometimes it sounds a bit weird to say that because we're talking about a human being who had children and had a wife and had an extended family and was murdered in the most appalling of circumstances but um, it's never been too far away from programs, radio programs, podcasts, I've never met anybody, David, who believes the official version of events that Chapman did it because he hated his um, rich lifestyle and because he hated the Jesus comments. Um, Incredibly fascinating. Before we talk about your own theories, what got you into it? It's a
1: good question. Um, It all happened, Richie, in 2020. Um, It was lockdown. It was the spring, I think, springtime when it happened for the first time. And as a TV producer, I had lots of projects on the go at that time, and they were kind of, it was a great time for me to kind of put them all to one side, to be honest with you. I was quite grateful to uh, put everything on hold and just sit back and and do a bit of a reset, really, to be honest with you. It was kind of, even though I hated the lockdown and everything that came around it, I I kind of was quite pleased for those first few weeks and months to kind of... uh, just take stock really and so that was the kind of time this story hit me and and basically what it was richie was i was out walking my dog which i know you do and i was having a lovely walk and i was listening to a podcast and out of the blue somebody said on this podcast that the doorman at the dakota when john lennon was assassinated was a cia assassin slash bay of pigs fighter and i thought that's interesting never heard that before um i need to uh I need to go look into this, because I should wheel back, wheel back a little bit. I've been very much fascinated all my life by the JFK assassination. Um, like yourself, Richie, I've got Irish roots, my parents are Irish, and as you know, JFK in Ireland is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so the Oliver Stone film in 1991 was a very big deal for me, I suppose you could call it, to use the cliche, that was my red pill moment. So when I came out of that film at the age of 25, uh, literally everything changed. I, I started to read about the JFK assassination you know, rapidly, And there's lots of books out there. Jim Mars, of course, Crossfire, you know, I know someone you've interviewed. Yeah, uh, that, yeah I think their film was actually taken from that book. So there's, you know, the JFK assassination is a very deep rabbit hole. And it's one I've been in for a long, long time. And one of the things that comes up about the JFK assassination, one of the key components is there's often a lot of theories that the Cuban, the right wing Cuban kind of uh, community that were uh, fighting at the Bay of Pigs often had a grudge against JFK and some of those people may have been in Dealey Plaza on the day that JFK was assassinated. So when I heard that the doorman might be uh, an ex-Cuban Bay of Pigs fighter, that was something I couldn't fail not to investigate.
0: No, absolutely right. So have you how far into that investigation have you got? Have you been able to determine if the doorman was indeed a CIA operative?
1: Uh, right, well, I can, I can put one big, massive red herring to bed right now, Richie. I'm 99% certain that Jose Padermo, the Dakota Jose Padermo, is not the Bay of Pigs Jose Padermo. Um, right. it was a ma- I think it was a massive red herring. Uh, it's the one that everybody talks about. And, and the way it came about is... There's a journalist called Jim Gaines who wrote an article on Mark Chapman in 1987 uh, in a People magazine article. He got access to Mark Chapman and spoke to him in his prison cell for three years. Up until that point, from the date of the murder, 8th of December 1980, till that 1987 article, nobody knew the name of the doorman who was at the Dakota when John Lennon was assassinated. For some reason, his name was kept under wraps and he was always just referred to as the doorman. Um, So, amazingly, no uh, media outlets interviewed him at the time and nobody seemed to be that bothered about him. So when Jim Gaines said that Mark spoke to a guy called Jose Podermo, who was an ex-Cuban, and he wanted to talk to Mark about the Bay of Pigs, and then he mentioned the guy's name for the first time, Jose Podermo, people started to look into it. And what they found out, Richie, was there was a Jose Podermo, a very serious individual who did work for the CIA and was at the Bay of Pigs and was in charge of a very serious bunch of dudes called Operation 40, who were basically a bunch of CIA assassins who were due to go in after the bear pigs and clean up anybody that wasn't gonna go along with the program. So that Jose Podermo was probably just about as serious an individual as you could get. So if he was working the door at the Dakota, that would be almost incredible. But the problem is once I started to dig into it, Richie, and I started to find out about Dakota Jose Podermo, nothing really matched up. And I, you know we could talk about the date of births don't match up, the date of deaths don't match up, but the, I think the most important thing to say, and the one that gets to it quite quickly, is Dakota Jose Padermo started to work at the Dakota in 1969, uh, and he finished working there in 1994. Now, John Lennon and Yoko Ono did not start living in the Dakota, I think, until 1971. So if Dakota Jose was Bayer Pigs Jose, How could he know to start working at the Dakota to be in place to uh, be on to help out? That's a brilliant point.
0: That's a brilliant point. David Whelan is a television producer. Successful one. He's writing a book and making a film about the assassination of John Lennon. Is it disappointing? Like, when, when you realise it's not him. I mean, look, I've been... You, 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 as, as a producer, you're more or less, anyway, a journalist. You're researching all the time. It is a bit of a yeah. kick in the teeth, isn't it, when, when it comes to a dead end?
1: I, I I had kind of bought... Yeah, I kind of bought into it initially because it was just so exciting. But then it kind of was almost a relief in a way that when I realised it wasn't, because it was just too fantastical. And I think that red herring that Jim Gaines laid down in 87 was deliberate. I, I don't think he... He's, he's, he mentioned, see the thing is Mark Chapman's never mentioned talking to Jose Padua about the bear pigs. So I think Jim was being a bit, let's just say to be kind, playful by throwing in that phrase. I don't think Mark Chapman was discussing the bear pigs with Jose Padermo. And I think the problem with that particular red herring is it, it stops people actually asking the most important questions about John Lennon's assassination. And those questions are all about how it went down, i.e. the details and and why it went down, i.e. just exactly what was Mark Chapman doing there and why was he standing there thinking he was doing something that we now know he didn't do. So I think these are the questions that should be being asked, but everybody's obsessed with Bay of Pigs, CIA, yeah. So It was quite a clever, quite a clever move.
0: Uh, brilliant. So we've seen this before with, with other events in history. They put out a red herring to send people off down uh, on a wild goose chase or down a rabbit hole that comes to a dead end that's definitely a tactic before we talk about Mark Chapman and there are a few questions coming in from listeners about um, there are some there are some urban legends out there you know um I oh, tell yeah, you what I'll they, throw I'll, I'll throw one at you right now do 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 we know if it's true or not that Mark Chapman as he is today that he doesn't have any recollection of the assassination is that true
1: No, he remembers it. He remembers it quite clearly. And for 43 years now, or 42 and a half years, he's always stuck to the same story. There are certain bits of the story he doesn't recall, which are disturbing because he doesn't actually recall what happened to John after he started firing bullets. He remembers being there. He remembers getting a gun out of his pocket. He doesn't remember pulling the hammer. He doesn't remember aiming. He remembers feelings, he remembers feeling it was such strange that the bullets were working. He thought that was odd, which is a strange thing to think if you're a cold calculated killer. And he can't recall what happened to John after the bullets started firing. John just kind of disappeared. So, but he does remember being there. He has fragmented memories of what happened after the murder. But what's important for us in trying to get to the bottom of it is there was quite a few secondary witnesses who were very quickly looking at the scene a few seconds after gunfire was heard. There was a a guy across the street who was in a flat that was literally opposite the Dakota driveway and there was a dog walker who double backed and had a look into the driveway seconds after gunfire because it's really important that because those witnesses are I think some of the most crucial ones because it tells us where Mark Chapman was standing because Mark's kind of said he was standing near the street and we kind of know John Lennon was down the other end of the driveway. But it's very important that we get those two locations fixed because then you can find out what's probable with regards to John's injuries and what Mark Chapman could pull off or couldn't pull off. Because just quickly to finish off on that point, Jose Padermo, the, do- the doorman that was standing next to Mark Chapman, he should have been the guy who got the front row seat. But the problem is, Richie, we've not been allowed to see his statement. Now we know he gave a statement, the DA's office have told me this, but for some reason most witness statements have been released on FOIs. pretty much every single one has been released now but jose's has not been released and i believe the reason that is is because i don't think jose saw very much from the people i've spoken to who spoke to jose i think what happened was jose went back to his gold booth where he stood which was just next to the driveway and i don't think he actually saw mark Chapman firing his gun i think he came back into the driveway very quickly after hearing gunfire but he did not see mark shoot john lennon and even more importantly richie the other really important witness yoko ono who you'd expect would see everything yoko didn't see it either and in fact you know i've managed to get hold of the detective notebooks from the time and he actually says i'll quote him she heard the shots but did not see the shooter and to be fair to yoko ono she's never said in 42 years that she saw mark chapman shoot her husband so these are the kind of things richie that people just take as fact that the dorm must have seen it all, Yoko Ono must have seen it all, Mark Chapman must be coherent, but all these things are not true. So no. it's, 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 a, what, it's, it's an amazing mystery. It,
0: it is, and, and the general public, I, I count myself as one, we get the black and white facts in the newspaper, and then you look back at the archives, which I've done, I've looked at the newspaper reports, and it's all very simplistic. You know, yeah. Chapman had a grudge against Lenin um, uh, earlier that evening he got a, a book signed or he got the album signed, excuse me, came back stood there steaming um, seizing because he, you know with the problems he had with him, walked up to him and fired at him five times and killed him and that's what we get, but then people like you, TV producers and journalists start digging into it and you start to p- p- pull it apart and quickly find that there are lots and lots of anomalies can you share with no. us David, we're speaking to David Whelan folks, please go to davidwhelan.substack.com please check it out it's very interesting give us the major anomalies in terms of like tell us well the official version says mark did this but it's dodgy or it's dubious because of x y and z go ahead over to you
1: okay so we need to just quickly go over the official story and by telling that you'll realize what a complete lot of nonsense it is so the official story is that john and yoko pull up outside the Dakota driveway which is a kind of 30 foot driveway probably 15 to 18 maybe 20 feet in in width 35 to 40 feet in length they're heading towards the far right hand side and at that time in 1980 there was a glass vestibule door kind of porch area which led up some stairs into the dakota lobby which is where they always walk to before they got into their apartments you had to get into apartments through that lobby so the car pulls up yoko allegedly gets out first. The official narrative says she gets out first, but I've got five different statements from Yoko at the time. And rather disturbingly, Richie, she says a few different things. Sometimes she said she was in front. Sometimes she said she was behind. Sometimes she said they crossed positions in the driveway. But let's go with the official statement for now. Yoko's out front. She's 20, 25 feet ahead of John. She's heading towards the vestibule door. Chapman is standing by the roadside. The doorman is there, we think, possibly not there. Maybe he's gone back to his booth. John then gets out of the limousine and John walks past Chapman, following Yoko, his wife, over to the far end of the driveway, over to the right, to the vestibule doors. As he gets to the vestibule doors, according to Chapman, according to the district attorney's office, and according to the NYPD and pretty much all the world's media to this very day, Mark Chapman gets out a gun. He's got a five-bullet .38 revolver, 5 chambers. They call it a fiver gun. He starts shooting at John's back, according to Chapman, Four bullets hit John's back and one bullet misses. And Chapman has been, he's been fairly consistent with that, Richie, for 43 years. He's never wavered from thinking that's what he did. But before we get to what happens next, let me just tell you what the medical people told me at the time. So these, these are direct quotes. This is from a guy called Stephen Lynn, who's a very dubious doctor who didn't actually perform what he said he performed on John Lennon, but he was there at the hospital. Stephen Lynn said this, He never stood a chance the first bullet killed him i'm sure he was dead when he was shot major arteries in his heart were ripped apart even if he was shot in a cardiac department of a hospital they couldn't have saved him so that's stephen lynn you then got elliot gross the chief medical officer he said death occurred within a very short time now i've spoken to dr halloran the surgeon who tried to save john Lynn's life many many times and the two nurses who assisted him barbara camera and Sato. And they saw John Lennon's wounds up real close. And they all said the same thing, Richard. He was dead on, it was, was instant, dead on impact. He said that, that, that all the major arteries around his heart were blown away. The aorta was blown away he had no chance of going beyond maybe one or two steps before he would have collapsed. And do
0: you believe, so that, that, do you believe that this is what they really think? This is their genuine opinion? Oh yeah,
1: a hundred percent. I've had countless conversations with the doctors and nurses, countless. We, we've, you know, we've become quite close actually me and the nurses and, you know, I, I'll tell you why they know this because they got to see his wounds up close for very specific reasons, but let's get back to the official narrative. So you've got Mark, at at the sidewalk, you've got John who's been shot now with four bullet holes in his back, according to Mark, Uh, and these bullet holes have ripped all the arteries around his heart to pieces. So at this point we're being asked to believe. John walks up to some vestibule doors, glass panel vestibule doors, he pulls the door open, and I know this because I know where John ended up, because I've spoken to the cops and the Dakota workers who found John, and we know exactly where he was found when the cops got there. So John opens the vestibule door, he walks into a little vestibule porch area. He then walks up six quite steep steps, and he gets to two more mahogany doors, which may have been open, may not have been open. I've been told by most people they are on a closer, but let's, let's be generous and say they were open. He walks through these mahogany doors. He's now in the lobby. He's in the Dakota lobby. Now, on his left, he's got a big uh, desk, big marble desk. And there's a little, on the extreme left, is a little kind of swinging saloon door. John walks through that, he walks into the lobby, goes over to the swinging door, walks through the swinging door, he's now into the concierge's front office, which is operated by a guy called Jay Hastings, the concierge, very interesting individual. Jay Hastings says today, though he didn't say this in 1990, that John said to him, I've been shot. And according to Jay, he runs past Jay, stumbles sometimes, Jay says, and he goes beyond Jay's office into a back office, Uh, which is called the superintendent's office and according to jay hastings that's where john collapsed on his face spread eagled and i can tell you that the cops that i've spoken to and another co-worker of jay hastings have all confirmed that that is where john lennon was found and that's where he died so this amazing magical mystery tour um
0: no pun intended when you
1: talk to you, you know no pun intended you talk to the doctors and nurses and i'll be honest with you, richard they laugh they don't, they don't mean to be mean, but they just find it comical that that not only could John not say any words to anybody, but he, he would have been, there's no way on earth that a man with those wounds could have done that journey. I know nothing but about somehow...
0: this. I'm stunned by what you're telling me. I know nothing of it. So they, they tell you the guy's heart was blown to pieces. But at But at the same time, having had his heart blown to pieces, he goes off yep. on this meandering journey through the lobby of the hotel, into the concierge's yep. office, yeah that's 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 not right
1: it it gets worse richie so what what i did in my investigation was when i started to sort of piece all this together i thought what i need to do is i need to do what they did with the jfk assassination i need to get to the medical because i think that's where you really find the truth it certainly was the case with jfk until with the parkland dallas um doctors and nurses and a lot of their testimony i think is a lot more valuable than the Bethesda Washington official autopsy when they snatched his body and took it away so I thought I'll try and get to the doctors. so I wasn't going to bother with Stephen Lynn Stephen Lynn for 30 years has said that he treated John Lennon and he pumped his heart with his hands unfortunately Stephen Lynn didn't do any of that he was in the room he did get called to assist because he was the head of the ER but he didn't lay any hands on John so for 30 years nobody really knew who the doctor was who treated John Lennon which was a problem because Stephen Lynn never went into any specifics about entrance and exit wounds. So Stephen taking the limelight for 30 years meant that for 30 years, nobody really got to the truth regarding John's medical condition. But I found the real doctor eventually, a guy called Dr. Halloran, a surgeon. Lovely guy. And uh, first thing I spoke to him was I said, tell me about the Lennon Report. Now, this was a film that uh, was brought out in 2016, Rich. It was a dramatic film. And it was done to try and get to the bottom of all these rumors about what happened at the Roosevelt Hospital when John was rushed there after he was shot and who actually treated him because Stephen Lynn had muddied the water so much. Some film producers said, look, let's do a drama. Let's get Halloran and the nurses involved and try and get down to the truth. So the first question I said to Dr. Halloran was, why wasn't a doctor called Frank Veteran in there? This is another doctor who I spoke to who said that John was shot all down his left side, which I thought was a bit strange. And the first thing uh, Doc, uh, Dr. Halloran said to me was, well, he wasn't in the room that night. I said, OK, that's interesting. He's just lied to me for an hour, telling me that he tried to save John Lennon. So the next question I asked Dr. Halloran, in all innocence, because he was one of the first people I spoke to, Richie, back in 2020, when I first started this investigation, I said, so tell me whereabouts on um, John Lennon's back, did, did he get shot? You know, we, Mark's always said he was shot in the back. The police said shot in the back. He said he wasn't shot in the back. He was shot in the front i just remember it was one of those kind of moments i just i knew exactly where i was i knew exactly how i felt when he said that because i just knew instantly this is seismic this is is jfk it's jfk all over again (laughs) you can't get shot in the back from the front no so i said so i said give me some details so the details are even more extraordinary he's uh, it was completely clear about this he remembers it like it was yesterday because what happens when john was brought in dr hallowen and a nurse called the archer said, so cut off John's clothes, this is what they do, this is a procedure, you get the scissors out, they cut all John's clothes off, cloth, leather jacket, all the rest of it. They turn his body front and back to assess the wounds. It's, it's just the first thing you do when someone comes in that condition. And he said they could see the wounds quite clearly. There were four bullet holes in John's upper left chest, just above his heart, in, I quote, a tight professional grouping. And three of those bullets passed through John's upper left back in a direct line of fire. No magic bullets moving around, going down into wrists and stuff. They went through, and he believes, Dr. Halloran, that one of the bullets, the one that was closest to John's left shoulder, stayed in. So that's four in the front, three out the back. And as he said to me, you can't get shot in the back when you've got that kind of grouping of bullets. So I said to him, I I I was completely shocked at this point. And I said to him, look, can I get somebody else verify this and he said yeah talk to the nurses talk to Barbara and D. they helped me that night they were the real nurses helping me out so I rang them up and they both said yeah 100% shot in the in the upper left chest tight professional grouping and I remember something I said to Dr. Hallen. I said do you realize Dr. Hallen, that Mark Chapman was standing 25-30 feet behind John Lennon facing John was facing away from Mark and he said, "Well, even if Mark, t- even if John Lennon turned around, and we'll get to that in a moment—the famous calling out, turning around lie—he said, even if he did turn around in that dark, dingy Dakota driveway with a thirty-eight revolver that has a kick in it every time it does a shot on a, as it goes through the chamber," he said, "There's no way that a Navy SEAL could pull off that kind of tight professional grouping above John's upper left chest." So it was—it was just kind of bombshell stuff, really, uh, Richie. Yeah, and and the nurses had another reason to be sure. This is one last thing I want to say on this, Richie, is the nurses had the job of washing John Lennon. So when, when they called it, and, and sadly, John, they couldn't say John, and to be honest, he didn't have a pulse when he came in. They said it was a Hail Mary exercise anyway. But when they called it after about half an hour of trying to pump his heart, etc., the nurses took his body away and they washed his body. They had the job of washing his body and shrouding it, which meant they got another good look at all of his body legs, arms, back, chest, shoulder, and they were adamant. They could see, clearly, because they were washing all the debris away, four in the front, three out the back. But then, after they shrouded him, something else really strange happened. The chief medical officer, a very controversial man who's been accused of falsifying autopsies over many years, just just look him up, Elliot Gross controversy, and you can find all you need to find about Elliot. Um, He turns up at the hospital that night, totally unannounced, And they said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm the medical officer. I want to see John Lennon's wounds. And they're like, well, why are you doing that? You're going to get his body in the morning. You know, the autopsy is due at nine o'clock the next morning. In a few hours time, you'll have him. They said, no, I want to see the wounds right now. Take his shrouds off. Take his bandages off. So they were furious. They had an argument for about 10 minutes saying it was disrespectful and all the rest of it. And in the end, he won them over. And they had to cut John's uh, John's bandages off and sit John up. I don't want to be gross and uh, you know but basically john started to bleed out and they were getting very angry about this because they felt it was quite disrespectful to john's body yeah and, and john himself but what gross did was silently he just walked around john's wounds he observed the wounds in the front observed the wounds in the back and left so the nurses washed him again they shrouded him again and of course because they had a chance to see john and wash him twice they are 100% certain that it was four shots in the front and three out the back. Now,
0: these are the nurses who told you previously that he, the aorta was smashed, that he was killed, that he couldn't have done the magic yes. walkabout. Yes. And that's incredible. Yes. So at the time, they never said to you that he was shot in the front. They just, they didn't say that at the time because they didn't come up well, in the conversation.
1: Well, well here's, what's, here's what's shocking, Richie. The, the media, they just, if you I mean, you've read some of the early reports. I think they never asked the question, the most obvious question. Where was John shot? Where Where were the entrance wounds? Where were the exit wounds? No detail. Just he was shot in the driveway, and he walked up behind him, and no detail. So it's just shocking that to this day, I mean, and you can also now there's videos of this. You know, Dr. hallowen has been on an ABC. If you go on my YouTube channel, "Assassination of Lenin," you you can see Dr. hallowen in an ABC documentary in 2020. Basically saying, yeah, four in the front and he three out the back and he actually puts his hand above his heart to point out where the fingers were, uh, where the bullets were. So there's, there's no question about it now. Um, and the problem is when you've got doctors like Stephen Lin trying to insert themselves into history more than they deserve to be, that, that's, that's how we've got, I think, partly to this place.
0: And it, journalists
1: it, at the time just didn't ask the right questions. They didn't
0: ask the right questions. David Wheelan, television producer, journalist, and a man who's writing a book and making a film about John Lennon. It'll be called "Give Me Some Truth: The Assassination of John Lennon." The book is coming soon. Davidwhelan.substack.com. To your knowledge, is John or any of John's is John's family interested in any of this?
1: It's a good question. Good question. Um, we know Sean Lennon in 1998 did an interview with the new yorker magazine um and he said at the time uh, quite controversially and he got a lot of trouble for it if you think the american government didn't have a hand in killing my dad you must be mad of course they did you know they kill revolutionaries like my dad as as part of the course Uh, the problem with that is julian then came out the next day and said sean you shouldn't be saying that you need to retract it and julian by all accounts persuaded sean to retract the statement Sean's been very quiet ever since, as has Julian. I, I think I've never approached him. It just feels wrong. Yeah, because of the sensitivity of the subject for me to approach them. You know, obviously, if they approach me and ask me for some of my evidence and, and, you know, some of the paperwork and notebooks that I've acquired, I'd love to share them with them. But um, maybe Julian yeah, thought
0: that I, Sean I, might be putting himself in harm's way, maybe
1: possibly i think the problem is with all the beatles and Yo- what you got to understand with yoko is is nothing happens in the beatles world unless yoko gives her say she has a veto basically so if they want to release any new music or any new product paul ringo and and olivia now george's wife have to get yoko say so so they all walk on eggshells around yoko and don't come into any don't enter into any kind of controversial Right. Areas is she really, of,
0: um, sorry, David, her. is she really that formidable? <laughs>
1: um, I, I don't know. I mean, you've, you know, there's rumours that she's very litigious. I, I don't think there's any actual hard evidence for that. I think she's scared. You know, the, the scary thing is, obviously, she was. I don't think she's in charge of the estate anymore. She's in char- she was in charge of an estate that some people estimate is worth a billion dollars. So it's, it's like, do you want to take on a billion dollar woman with a grudge? I mean, what's interesting about Yoko is now, now we're on to her. It, the, the people that I spoke to in the Beatles world, who knew the who knew John in his Beatles days, and the people that I spoke to who knew John in his solo years, and, and I've actually spoken to two people who actually worked for John and Yoko in the Dakota right up until the murder, they all do not have good things to say about her. They, it's just kind of universal hatred, really. And they all think she's a very dark individual who somehow had something to do with the murder. Now, there's no actual hard evidence that Yoko Ono has got anything to do with the murder. That I can tell you right off the bat. But she has given some very disturbingly uh, varied accounts. Could that not be, could that not be put
0: down to the fact that this is an incredibly traumatic thing to happen to anyone? Yes.
1: Yeah, 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 you're right, Richie. It could be. But they are so different. Such basic facts of who, who got out of the limo first. Uh, where did John get shot? Exactly what part of the driveway? What did he say to you? All these things have been different. Did he manage to get up some stairs? Did he not? Did he sit, did he stand up? Did he sit down? When even, even Yoko's has said, this is what disturbs me the most, that she ran in very quickly after John did his magical mystery tour and uh, shouted, you know, uh, you know, get an ambulance, call a doctor. The problem is, Richie, I've got a secondary witness who's not often spoken about, and I got this through the, the lead detective's notebooks, which I managed to acquire. And her name is Nina Rosen. And Nina Rosen was a dog walker, and she was walking past that Dakota driveway, and she heard gunfire, and she double backed. So we're probably talking five, six seconds after the event, maybe maybe 10 seconds. And what she said she saw was, she saw Mark and the doorman standing just by the sidewalk, which is where we always thought Mark was, and it's important to place him there. She didn't see John, she didn't see a gun, but what she did see was Yoko Ono in the driveway slash courtyard screaming for quite some time. So Yoko running in directly after John, which is what she said a couple of times, didn't happen. I've also had cops who turned up shortly after that, who also testified to the fact that Yoko was seen in the driveway. Now she did go back in, she definitely went in to see John's body, that's for sure, at some point, because some Dakota residents have placed her there and said that they saw her with John's body, or they saw her in the lobby, didn't actually see her with John's body. So it's worrying when you, you're right, PTSD, You know, it's, it's an awful event. She was definitely screaming, that's for sure. Other people have heard her screaming as well that were further down the road. But the problem is, Richie, stuff like where she was, it's very important to put her in a position because then you can figure out where John was and where Mark was and what was achievable. And if, if you keep, she she basically gave five statements. She gave two statements on the night and she gave three statements on the on the days after the murder, very shortly after. And each one is different, t- fundamentally different. And, and that kind of, you know, you think a few days later when you've calmed down, you can actually, give a cohesive statement. And and the one thing she's never said, to her credit, uh, is she saw Mark Chapman shoot her husband. So I don't think she did.
0: That's very interesting, that that, that, that whole Yoko angle. And I, I suppose the fact that they had the guy, you know, Mark Chapman, they had their man. Nobody then needed to, or nobody felt they needed to dig into Yoko's five statements and the glaring... Differences Mm. and contradictions in the statements. David Whelan is our guest. Look at the time. God, it's uh, 19 (laughs) minutes to the top of the hour. Tell us this. If Mark Chapman didn't kill John Lennon, who might have wanted John Lennon dead? You know yourself, whenever a murder is committed, detective gets there, Mm. he or she says, right, who benefits from the demise, the murder of this gentleman or lady? Who would have benefited in 1980? 40 year old john lennon i said 42 earlier god forgive me he was 40 who benefited with his murder
1: well uh, if you look into the people that were in mark chapman's life and perhaps this is a conversation for another show um because mark chapman's life is 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 very interesting it's not some crazy guy playing records backwards Uh, and just suddenly snapping one day and going out and shooting John Lennon in a fit of rage because he's such a loser. I I could kind of, I could accept that if that was what it was, but Mark Chapman lived a very rich and varied and colourful life where travel and money seemed to be no problem to him. He was also surrounded by people with deep ties to uh, the military and intelligence agencies. Um, And the the, the problem is, Richie, John Lennon, I think people forget because he's been glossed over and these days he's... Often, if you see a John Lennon article, it's generally about what a horrible man he was. Yeah. Uh, but what pe- what people forget is, you know, he was a peace activist of probably the highest caliber of his time. I, I, in fact, I don't think anyone since has put as much work into promoting world peace as John Lennon did back then in the day. So he was anti-war. He was anti-religion to a to an incredible extent. If you research the amount of criticism that John laid out against religion, not just the "we're bigger than Jesus" stuff, but just before that and after, he was constantly criticizing religion. So he was anti-religion. And of course he was anti-capitalism. And a lot of a lot of people believe that Imagine is a kind of socialist diatribe. Um not quite sure about that. But he 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 was kind of the kind of guy that would have been hated by the Nixon regime. And we know Richard Nixon absolutely despised him and the feeling was mutual. And Nixon was a very vindictive man. I think anyone who's ever watched the Nixon tapes documentary will know just what a vindictive dark individual he was uh, so he was in the background and he was good friends with ronald reagan who of course was coming in very shortly after john's assassination um, so for reagan and his central and uh, and uh, central american adventures iran contra all the rest of it with, with his kind of hawkish plans coming up someone like john lennon who could bring out thousands of anti-war protesters at a drop of a hat now he was back in the recording studio and what's interesting about Mark Chapman, Richie, and again, we'll get into this probably in another episode, but Chapman oh, yeah. was triggered in, in August 1980 to suddenly become obsessed with the catcher in the rye and John Lennon. Two things also happened in August 1980. Reagan at that point was pretty much a to win the election that was coming up in November, in August, it was kind of so far ahead in the polls, it was kind of a done deal. And John Lennon started to go back into a recording studio in August 1980. And that was the exact time in Hawaii that Mark Chapman was triggered to start becoming obsessed with the capture in the Orion, John Lennon, That's and, then incredible, Heath, to you, and to use his words, Richie, it was a compulsion that he couldn't understand. It was a runaway train that he couldn't stop and he just had to do it. And, and it's kind of, and, and when you look into the amount of hypnotists that were in Mark Chapman's life before the murder and incredibly some of the dark, nefarious hypnotists that were in his life after the murder, that were desperate to get into his cell uh it's it's mind blowing we absolutely will with your
0: permission, of course. I mean you've said you will do it anyway, we we will follow this oh. up very soon with more on chapman and I think we can talk about JFK as well, you and I. David Real are sure. our guest. Right, so so I interviewed Cathy O'Brien um, many years ago and I've interviewed her <laughs> since. I've interviewed others. I know I interviewed General Burts Doublebine a few times over the years. Um, I, I know that MK, right. MK Ultra is real. I know what they were doing to people. We sure. know Document we, it. Absolutely. We know that they used Assassins I believe Sirhan Sirhan was an unwilling, um, you know, assassin. Somebody who may may not have even fired the fatal shots. But um, so this was going on. So so people are mentioning um MK Ultra. We probably get into that in another episode. I've got to mention this because um I've got some well-read listeners. Leonard says to me, Richie, it is believed by some researchers, um that that Yoko might have been a handler for John. Because a lot of famous people, when they get very famous or are becoming very famous, they are introduced to handlers. Handlers who are put there by the deep state to keep them in check because music is a tool for social change by the establishment. Now, Some people will think that's very fanciful, but I've heard that a lot over the years. Like The establishment is the establishment. Look at this guy. He's getting massive. He's getting huge. Um, People love him. They hang on his every word. Well, let's introduce him to Yoko. I'm not saying I uh, agree or believe this at all, but it's out there. What do you think of that?
1: uh there could be something to it i mean she she definitely went after him for the money i think that's now fairly standard that that's known that she's kind of admitted it i spoke to one of their friends who was living with them at the time when yoka was married to a guy called tony cox when she first met john Lennon, and she she needed money She, she was kind of uh she was a penniless artist in london she had a baby she had a baby girl she was tony cox was a bit of a grifter and and they kind of they they targeted the Beatles and she went to by all accounts she went for McCartney first then she went for Lennon uh, she got a clause there was apparently a contract uh, a friend of the Lennon's called Tony Bramwell has often said in books and, and, and many different videos and interviews that there was this contract and I've actually spoken to a guy who lived with the owner and Cox at the time he said yeah there was a contract and the contract was if Yoko managed managed to marry uh, John Lennon. She would have to split some of the proceedings with Tony Cox. Um, so, you know, I I think also if you listen to Cynthia, Cynthia John's is adamant that when she first, yeah, when she first came across John and Yoko together, you know, Yoko was quite brazen, just you know, being in in their own home together. Uh, when Cynthia was out, and she'd come back, and and she often says that John was often seen to be in a kind of hypnotised kind of state when he was around Yoko and with Yoko, and that's also something that May Pang has said. John's lover from the uh, mid 70s when he left Yoko for a couple of years and went on his wild weekend in L.A. So y- yeah, there could be something in it. There's, there's no proof of that. But yeah, it, she's not. The, the, one thing's for sure, Richie, the double fantasy album where they're both kissing on the front in 1980 was well was well named as far as I'm concerned, because I think their love was a fantasy at that point. I don't think they were very close, John went to Bermuda by himself, Yoko had by all accounts a couple of boyfriends, one called Sam Green and one called Sam Habitoy, and by many good accounts of people that I spoke to that were in the Dakota at that time, um, Sam Habitoy moved in pretty much the next day after John Lennon's murder, so that, that's that's not good, it could be for comfort, let's be honest, and some people have said that Sam Habitoy was actually a homosexual, so, Perhaps it wasn't what people thought it was. But here's, here's my big problem with Yoko, uh, uh, while we're still on her. And she, I wasn't planning to talk about Yoko so much, but it is fascinating. What really disturbs me, Richie, is there were two things that would have really sealed the deal with this whole murder that would have made life so much easier to get to the truth. The first thing was an ER report that Dr. Haller and the two nurses made out on the night of John's uh, murder at the hospital. And it was basically a stick drawing and it had a front stick man and a back stick man and they they pointed four bullets holes on the front three on the back and they all wrote quite copious notes about what they saw and what they did that ER report went missing that night and no one's ever seen it since so somebody didn't want that truth to get out and the second thing that would have really given the game away with regards to what happened to John was the autopsy now Elliot Gross is pretty much an episode in himself, but he is a highly dubious individual who's had a lot of accusations against him. So I don't put a lot of store in his autopsy. But here's the thing, after he did the autopsy, so we're talking nine o'clock the next morning, so we're talking, what are we are talking, eight, nine hours after the murder, the autopsy's done. That very afternoon, say one, two o'clock, Yoko Ono calls up her bodyguard, a guy called Doug McDougall, another very interesting ex-FBI guy we could talk about, And she says to Doug, go down to the morgue, pick up John's body, take it to the crematorium and get it burnt. And she basically had him cremated less than 24 hours after his murder. Now to me, that's a rush job. There was just no need to do it that quickly. And it, it, that kind of rush disturbs me. Yeah. Um, and also what that rush did do as well, Richie, it didn't, it didn't give the defense, a chance because Chapman had a lawyer at that point the first day, but the second day that lawyer bailed and then he got another lawyer. So there was no chance for his defense lawyer to say, actually, can we have another autopsy? Can we take some pictures? Can we get some, you know? So, you know, it's kind of, from a kind of criminal defense point of view, it was, it's borderline illegal what they did there. They, They really rushed through that autopsy and they rushed through that cremation. And that's disturbing.
0: I'm going to ask you one final question for today. Before I do, uh, davidwieland.substack.com. David's a television producer. He's a writer and a researcher and he is producing a documentary about what we've been talking about. The assassination of John Lennon and a book. I can't wait to see the film and read the book and we'll promote the absolute bejesus out of it, David, when, um, when it all Thank comes you. out. So here's my final question. After everything you yeah. said, right, my next question is going to sound pathetic but I'm going to ask it anyway, right? <laughs> (laughs) Right. Because I I would be I would be lousy if I didn't ask this. Right. Here we go. Um, John Lennon was beloved. He was a genius. Um, There was never anybody like him. He was worshipped by people. If he could go back to 1980 and imagine how highly regarded and how much loved he was. It's very difficult for people when they learn that such a man, such a mountain of a man, such an intellect, such a songwriter, such an artist, could be murdered by a shitty owl idiot like Mark Chapman. And because we can't comprehend that, we, people, we start to imagine fairy tales about assassins and paperwork going missing and footsteps in the night. Now I know you've had this before. I'm not, <laughs> saying, I, I'm not saying this is my position. But some listening will probably think that. They think people can't just accept that sometimes it's as simple as it is. Chapman is a madman. Lennon's security wasn't good enough. He walked up to him and he murdered him. And this is wonderfully entertaining, but come on, Chapman killed him. What do you say to that?
1: I, I don't blame them, Richie, to be honest, to say that, because the Mark Chapman shot John Lennon story narrative has been very well told and very consistently told, albeit in a very woolly and detailed fashion for 42 years. And it's, it, it's been basically two journalists who did that. Well, one journalist and one semi-journalist, uh, Jim Gaines and another guy called Jack Jones, who've had a clear run at every single book, documentary, and magazine article to give the narrative out there. But I'll, I'll finish with this, Richie, is why we know for sure that Mark Chapman didn't do it. The actual location of where John was shot, I've kind of got down now through talking to the police, talking to the detectives, talking to the people on the ground. John was actually shot on the stairway inside the vestibule. Yoko's confirmed that in a couple of her statements that, that bullets actually were fired into John after he went into the vestibule. Secondary witnesses who spoke to the doorman said that John was shot inside the vestibule. And I've actually got a clip, there's a bit of news footage on my YouTube channel, again have a look, assassination of Lennon, The guy called Ron Hoffman, the lead detective, is talking outside the Roosevelt Hospital, probably an hour after the murder, states quite unequivocally, and he said this to me on a recorded interview as well, john lennon was shot on the stairway inside the vestibule now the thing is richie john john lennon inside the vestibule on the stairway is completely out of mark chapman's eyesight not only could he not see him there was no way he could shoot him in that particular location so mark chapman thought he was doing something for sure he thought he was firing at john lennon but of course he didn't see john get hit he didn't see john fall over and john somehow got from that stairway into that back office and that's a question for another day how that happened i'm I'm still not completely sure how that happened because we know that's where he ended up but how he got from that stairway to that position is a mystery that i hope my book will unravel i've got a pretty good idea how it happened but here's the thing also just one last thing richie ask 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 people to have a look at the glass vestibule doors there's a couple of photos that most of the crime scene stuff has never been released. They've kept it all under wraps, but a few photos got out one under Foy and one was an associated press photographer who took a picture of these vestibule glass doors. There are three bullet holes, two in one door, one in the other. Problem with these bullet holes is Richie, there's no blood around them. And I've spoken to everybody who saw them and said, no, there was no blood and they're too low down. They're way too low down for bullets to go into John's back or to come out of his back or to go into his upper left chest. Those bullet holes shouldn't be there. And they're very awkward and nobody in the official narrative ever talks about those bullet holes in those vestibule doors. So the mystery will go on. And uh, a new investigation into John Lennon's murder has to be conducted because there was no investigation at the time, Richie. There, there was that that driveway was open the next day. They were mopping up blood that very night. I know this because I spoken to the people who did it and um, investigation, a proper investigation did not happen and it needs to happen.
0: Brilliant having you on to talk about this. You're welcome back soon. Let's do it sooner rather than later. David Whelan. Oh,
1: anytime. Anytime, Richie. Really enjoyed it.
0: No, it's been brilliant. DavidWheelan.substack.com, And on the podcast notes, I will include a link, obviously, to David's website, but also to his Twitter account. So go and follow him on Twitter. We can't wait for the film and for the book. Thanks so much for your time, David. It was educational.
1: Thanks a lot, Richie. Really enjoyed it. All the best.
0: You're welcome, mate. Bye for now. David Whelan live on... um, uh, Wednesdays Richie Allen radio show. Listen, just in the last couple of minutes, I've had a number of messages on my phone from people back home, and I've had some messages from people listening to the program. Um, it's been reported in the last 15 minutes that Sinead O'Connor has um died, aged 56. The Daily Mail, the Mail Online, um, is reporting that Sinead may have died. Um, uh, has died today. Um. 18 months after her son, Shane, uh, 17, took his own life. uh, They're writing about the fact that she has had uh, her problems with mental health issues and has died aged 56. Um, I'm incredibly moved by that uh, as somebody who um, had and has an awful lot of time for Sinead O'Connor. During my radio days in Spain, I interviewed her a few times about different things, about religion and and whatnot. Um, But um, yeah, Sinead O'Connor, it's been announced, has passed away age fifty six I'm going to bring up the BBC website, and I'm not even sure the BBC has this yet. Some of the tabloid newspapers through their online through their websites are basically reporting it so it's it's absolutely breaking news. I hate to use that bloody term but um let me see what the Irish Times is saying about it. The Irish Times is reporting that the acclaimed Dublin performer released ten studio albums while her song, Nothing Compares to You, was named the number one world single in 1990 by Billboard Music Awards. Irish singer Sinead O'Connor has died aged 56. And um, that's that's very, very sad news. For anybody who grew up listening to her music and seeing her perform, I saw her play live in Dublin many, many years ago and thought she was particularly fantastic. Listen, that's it for the programme. Sad way to end it. Thanks very much to my guests, by the way, this evening um really appreciate um, David Whelan for coming on and talking about John Lennon. And, uh, and also, of course, um, speaking earlier on to Pete Gregson about um, anti-Semitism and about um, being suspended from his role as a scout treasurer because of his pro-Palestinian activism. I was obviously going to play out with some John Lennon. I'd lined up, imagine, but I'm going to go out with Nothing Compares to You from Sinead O'Connor. It's terribly sad news. I'll see you tomorrow at five. Until then, bye for now, bye.